All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer for his guidance and direction. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word And it's just remarkable that the more we study, the more we realize how much we need to learn and how much there is for us to learn. We're reminded that the psalmist says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which means that we can't really see or discern or comprehend where we're going unless we shine the light of your word on our thinking and upon our lives. So, Father, as we study your word, may we be reminded that this is your word to us, that it is designed to strengthen our souls and to give us guidance throughout life, and that every word, every passage is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that we might not treat it lightly, but that we might uh, desire to know it more and more to strengthen and dominate our thinking and our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 17, so turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, and this morning we're going to look at basically five verses, Matthew 17, 9 to 13, and the focus here is on understanding the, the significance and the roles of Elijah and John the Baptist, how this comes together uh, in the New Testament. And it's important for us, in order to get focused on this section, to have a little review, going back to what we learned back as far back as Matthew chapter 15. Now remember, up t- until the end of chapter uh, chapter 16, Jesus is giving more and more instruction to the disciples. He's training them in order for them to be prepared spiritually for that time that comes after his death. But then towards the end of Matthew uh, chapter 17, when he begins to announce in verse 21 that it's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and to die and be buried, and that he would rise again, at that point he's beginning to prepare them for the fact that he's going to die. And that message really rattles their cage because their whole uh, presupposition about the Messiah doesn't fit this scenario. They have been imbued with their cultural expectation from uh, uh, First Temple Judaism, or excuse me, Second Temple Judaism, that the Messiah is going to come and give them a glorious reign and throw off their enemies and, and their conquerors and establish this, this uh, incredible time of peace and prosperity and glory. And having the Messiah die, die just doesn't fit their scenario. 
And so this, this is what shakes them up, this whole idea of a suffering Messiah. Now, if we go back to Matthew chapter 15 and verses 21 to 28, Jesus was teaching the disciples about the bounty of God's grace, not just to the Jews to whom he has been primarily ministering, but at that point he goes outside of Galilee. He went to uh, uh, the area of Phoenicia, to Tyre and Sidon, and to a Canaanite woman, and there he uh, cast a demon out of her out of her daughter. So that that emphasizes his God's uh, bountiful grace to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, that this is a foreshadowing of what will come in the church age. Then as Jesus came back from that area, here we have a map, as he came back from that area, which was along the coast, he came back towards the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he ha- was the multitudes came to him and multitudes of Gentiles, and he healed them. And at that same time, this is when he fed the 4,000 Gentiles from the just a few loaves and, and, and fish. Again, emphasizing the expansiveness of God's grace uh, to the Gentiles. And he's also continuing to teach the disciples that God's grace is more than sufficient for whatever problem that they face. That's what he taught them earlier with the feeding of the 5,000, reinforced that with the feeding of the 4,000, emphasizing that that blessing to the Gentiles was also mirrored that God's blessing towards towards the Jews, again, foreshadowing what would take place in the future with the church. Then Jesus warned them about the evil of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees and their uh, their religious doctrine in Matthew 16, 1 through 12. And then uh, following that, he took them to up north to Caesarea Philippi, which we see on the map. And there, with just the disciples around, no crowds, no multitudes, he began to ask them, who do you think that I am? And as the spokesman, the one who was the most uh, vocal among the disciples, Peter spoke up and he gave the right answer. And he said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this, for this, Jesus praised him and emphasized that it was upon uh, this rock referring to himself that he would build his church. First reference to the coming church that's given in the Gospels. Only Matthew uses the word ecclesia uh, for the church. We see it in Matthew 16. We'll see it again in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 18. And then it is at that point that he begins to warn them not to tell them about the fact that he was Jesus the Messiah. And this gets its meaning from many Old Testament passages, which is one of the reasons I read through Isaiah 53 in the Scripture reading this morning. And as we read through Isaiah 53, what strikes us is this is not a picture of a glorious reigning Messiah. This is a picture of a suffering Messiah. And one of the uh, misunderstandings, one of the errors in the theology of the rabbis and the Second Temple period is they they focused on the glorious rule of the Messiah 
and his his role as the suffering Messiah began to diminish and diminish more and more until it, it was virtually forgotten and unknown. And so everybody thought of the Messiah only as this wonderful, conquering, ruling, glorious Messiah who's going to bring in a, a utopic kingdom, all of which is true. But what the scriptures teach is that the cross, the suffering Messiah, must come before the reigning and glorious Messiah. The cross comes before the crown, not the other way around. So we see uh, the language in Isaiah 53 that he's despised and not esteemed at the end of verse 3. In verse 4, he bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, but he's stricken. He's smitten by God. He's afflicted language that indicates rejection, that indicates suffering. Um, Verse 5, he's wounded for our transgressions, and it's by his stripes. That is, that that, uh, whipping, scourging, uh, that we are are healed. In Isaiah 53, 8, he's cut off from the land of the living, a language that indicates that he is going to die. He's, He's suffering, and he will die and that he is stricken for the transgressions of my people at the end of verse 8. They make his grave with the wicked. Again, a clear indication that he is going to die, and that this comes before the glory of the kingdom. In Isaiah 53.10, we learn that it is the Lord's will to bruise him and to make him a sin offering for his people. And then in verse 11, that it is through that that God looks on him and he is satisfied. That's the English word propitiation. He's satisfied. His God's righteousness and justice are satisfied by the suffering of Christ, his payment for our penalty. And that by his knowledge, that is learning who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, many will be justified. So that here you have, again, a clear doctrine that it is through the Messiah that justification occurs for uh, human beings. Many will be justified, and it's done how? Substitutionary atonement through he's the one who will bear our iniquities. So G, uh, Peter, the disciples, recognize, they have recognized each each few months they get more and more information their knowledge and understanding of the fact that he's the messiah would grow and increase and now uh, jesus is going to add a new dimension to this and he tells them in verse 21 uh, from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and raised on the third day so this just is something that that they don't understand and peter really doesn't understand it and once again he comes along and he just basically says lord this can't be now let's just not do this that's not uh that's not really the plan we we don't believe that and it just shows how much a, any of our presuppositions can block us from really understanding the truth. We have a wrong presupposition or assumption, and then we read the Scripture, and the Scripture says something else, and we just have difficulty understanding it because we're locked in by a, an erroneous, erroneous presupposition. And that's what had happened with with Peter, and so Jesus rebukes him. In fact, he calls him Satan because he's taking Satan's position that that you don't need to suffer, you don't need to go to the cross. It's not necessary. And so he's rebuked uh, by by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then there's a section there where the Lord talks about the fact that if we're really going to follow him, we need to take up our cross and follow him. We would rather dwell on the thoughts of a glorious, utopic environment than on the fact that we need to suffer. We need to follow the Lord in his sufferings, not for salvation, but in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, submitting to the authority of God. That's We saw that's the meaning of that phrase, to take up our cross and follow him. And at the end of that statement, in verse 27, Jesus says that the Son of Man will come in his glory. And then in verse 28, he says that there were some in that group that would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his, in his kingdom. And so he is clearly indicating that this kingdom isn't going to come until after the Messiah suffers and dies. The kingdom, as we've learned, is postponed. It was originally offered to Israel by John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then by Jesus and then by his disciples until we got to Matthew 12 when he's, uh, Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees in an official capacity and they claim that he is performing his miracles through the power of Beelzebul. And so at this point, uh, after announcing that there would be some in the group that would not see death until they saw the kingdom, then six days later, we're told in the first part of chapter 17, which we studied last week, Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John, with him up on top of an unnamed mountain, pointed out that some people think it's Mount Carmel because that was in the north. Others think it was uh, Mount Tavor, which is further south down in Galilee. We're not really sure where he uh, took them up on this high mountain, and there something just incredible uh, took place. He revealed his glory. He, as it were, he took the veil off and and, and um, displayed his glory as the uh, as the God of of creation, the God of Israel, and they were just uh, just dumbfounded. And then. Uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and, and Peter, who just doesn't want to miss out on anything, often sticks his foot in his mouth, says, well, Lord, let me build uh, three tabernacles for uh, Elijah and Moses and for you. And, of course, by doing so, he's basically putting Jesus on the level of, uh, of a prophet. As I pointed out last time, Jesus is more than a prophet. He was a prophet to fulfill Deuteronomy 15 the prophet like Moses, but he's more than a prophet. He's the son of God. And so God the Father then interrupts Peter, basically saying, be quiet, Peter, and listen, pay attention. Uh, don't put your foot in your mouth anymore. And at, at which point uh, Moses and Elijah disappear. They've had a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ about his mission to Jerusalem and his coming death. So there were things that were understood and learned or should have been learned by Peter, James, and John. And then when the Father spoke, we're told that he showed up in a bright cloud which overshadowed them. Now, we're not sure exactly when this took place, but it is approximately five or six months prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, if Jesus was crucified uh, around the time of, of uh, March, in that next year, in, in 33 uh, A.D., then what we would expect is that this is sometime in October or September, depending on how th it fell at that, that time of year, which is about this time of year. 
And the language that's used here is interesting. Peter says, we need to build tabernacles for you three. And then the Father shows up in glory, a bright cloud, and overshadows them. And this is language that we often find in the fall feast of Israel called Sukkot. Guess when Sukkot is? Begins at sundown tonight. So I thought I would just take this point time to point that out. We don't know that this is the exact time, but it is um, it is germane to our topic because the the feast of Sukkot is a feast that points Israel to uh, the future fulfillment of the kingdom in glory. A sukkah, which is the singular of the of the plural noun Sukkot, was basically a lean to. Sometimes it's translated booths. You've heard uh maybe the uh feast referred to as the Feast of Booths. And it looks back to the time that Israel was in the wilderness when they basically lived in lean-tos along the way that they would build in these temporary dwelling places uh, where they lived uh, uh, tents uh, until they uh, arrived in the promised land. And so the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths looks back to how God provided for them in the wilderness, but that that was a foreshadowing to look forward to the future kingdom that God would provide for them, that those temporary dwellings were just for now, but that God would replace them with with permanent dwellings. So this is the focus on the, the Feast of Booths. And in both biblical and rabbinic tradition, the Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the kingdom, the future kingdom of the Messiah. It teaches about the reestablishment of of what Amos 9.11 calls the Tabernacle of David. And that's because now the Tabernacle of David has fallen. Uh, the time of Christ, the Tabernacle of David has fallen. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that a tabernacle is a dwelling place or a, or a home or a house. It's referring to the house of David, the dynasty of David, had fallen on hard times after the defeat of Judah, following the uh, at the time of the Babylonian captivity and that kingship was never restored to the house of David but the one who will restore the kingship to the house of David is the Lord Jesus Christ as the greater son of David and we've seen that that title that was used by the Canaanite woman the, whose daughter was demon possessed Jesus cast the demon out used that title son of David uh, to refer to to Jesus so one aspect of this uh, of this feast that begins tonight is to focus upon the future restoration of the house of David during the time of the of the kingdom of the Messiah. Another aspect of Sukkot was the dwelling of God in the wilderness in the tabernacle, and it related to the Shekinah glory, which was the cloud that showed up when God's presence was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And that was referred to by the word I mentioned last time, uh, skene, and that's the word that's translated tabernacle or a dwelling place. Uh, the English word that, that, uh, that comes from that is used in, as a technical term in, in uh, drama, in theater, and it comes across to English as the word scene, S-C-E-N-E. So as I said, we have 
counterparts or cognates to that word skene in almost every language in, in the world. So when they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's sort of a foreshadow there is a foreshadowing of the future kingdom and the glory of the Messiah. And the language that's there is uh, the same kind of language that's used in talking about the Feast of Sukkot. Uh, Jesus used the word, or John uses the word, to describe Jesus in John chapter 1, that word skene, where he, he writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the verb form of the word, the dwelling of the second person of the Trinity in a human body. And so that uh, cloaked his his uh, his glory. Now, so that's what in Matthew 17, 4 and 5, Peter had said, let us make those three tabernacles. That's that word skene. We also have the bright cloud showing up. And then in verse 9, Moving on, as they came down from the mountain to rejoin the other disciples, Jesus gave them an odd command. Earlier, remember, he told them not to tell anyone that he was Yeshua HaMashiach, that he was Jesus the Christ. And now, as he comes down with Peter, James, and John, he says, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And I'm sure Peter's thinking, there you go, Lord, talking about dying again. That's not the plan. We don't like that plan. We like the plan where you just bring the kingdom. And and what do you keep talking about? The fact that you have to go suffer and you have to die. What's happened to the kingdom? That's the thought that's going on inside their uh, their minds. And so in verse 10, they articulate that. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And see, what they're really asking is on their understanding of the Old Testament, there's the prophecy in Malachi that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. And Elijah will be the forerunner of the Messiah, and Elijah will proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And they're saying, well, we don't understand if if uh, uh, the scribes teach us that Elijah may come first. Uh, what's going on with the plan? Because the Messiah, I mean, the, the Messianic kingdom's not coming according to you. You're going to die, so we're just totally confused, and we don't know uh, what is going on. And part of the background for understanding this is understanding that there's contingency in God's plan. And I think that's an important thing to recognize because it applies to all of our lives. God in his sovereignty is directing human history to its end, to his desired goal. But within that plan, God has allowed uh, and built in a certain uh, amount of, of flexibility to allow for our negative volition so that in his omniscience he knows all of the things that can take place and all of the things that would have, could have, should have taken place but won't take place because of our volition. So it allows for human beings to have genuine volition in different times and at many times we make bad decisions and so we're living on about plan X, Y, or Z instead of plan A, B, or C But nevertheless, God is still working out his plan. His ultimate plan and structure 
is not dependent upon human volition. He will still uh, work things out. And uh, I remember years ago when I was listening to Charlie Clough teaching in the uh, Framework series, as at the time I was, uh, I, I listened to the first series back in the, in the 70s when I was in seminary and wrestling with these issues on sovereignty and free will and Calvinism and Arminianism. And he made this statement in talking about how the, uh, how the curse of sin so fragmented and corrupted all of uh, physiological creation that, that he said God built enough uh, 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 enough um, flexibility within the DNA structure of human beings and all living things and within the structure of all the physical world to handle this massive chaos that would enter as a result of Adam's use, wrong use of his volition in the garden. And he was talking about the curse and creation but at the time, I was studying about the, the issues about free will and sovereignty, and it struck me that that's exactly how it works within free will and God's sovereignty. He gives us the freedom to make bad decisions, but God is of such, has such magnificent power and control that he doesn't have to force human beings to do everything the way he wants to bring about his end result. He is still able to bring about his end result without violating individual human responsibility. So there's this, this flexibility there. And we see this in passages where Jesus speaks, like in Matthew 11:23, where he is addressing the negative volition, the hostility of his hometown Capernaum. And he says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles... If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. See, he knows what would have happened if, if, if Sodom had been positive. He knows what the alternatives would have been. And he understands not only what will happen, but what could have or would have or should have happened. So we ha- there's that flexibility there, but God doesn't lose control because he gives a measure of freedom to human beings to exercise, exercise their, uh, their volition. And so as we study in Matthew uh, 17, we have to go back to some other passages to understand what comes up here in Matthew chapter, uh, to understand what comes up in Matthew 9, when our 17, uh, 1710, when Peter says, why, why does it say that Elijah must come first? Is this wrong? What's going on here? And so to understand this, we have to go back and look at some things we've already studied, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, but also what is said in the, in the Old Testament related to John the Baptist and Elijah, because this comes back to contingency again. That John the Baptist, here's basically what I'm saying, John the Baptist would have had that role of Elijah if Israel had responded positively to the message that Jesus was the Messiah. Then he would have fulfilled that role of Elijah. But because they rejected Jesus, John ended up not being that or fulfilling that Elijah role. That will be ultimately fulfilled 
by someone in the tribulation period. So in Matthew chapter 11, going back to that passage where uh, the, the context is talking about John the Baptist, this is where it, 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 it looks back to the death of John the Baptist, and Jesus quotes from Malachi, and he says, For this is he, that is referring to John the Baptist, he says, This is he of whom it is written. Now, there's no wiggle room there in that statement. Jesus is definitely saying that John the Baptist is the one that Malachi is talking about. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So he is saying that that John the Baptist fulfills that messenger role as the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who announces his coming. Now, I pointed this out in our study in Samuel, that there's a pattern that we see in the Old Testament, and it starts with, with Samuel. When Samuel, when, when God is going to give Israel a king, the first person to show up is going to be Samuel, the prophet, because Samuel represents the authority of the throne of God, and Samuel as the prophet is the one who anoints the king, indicating that the king is under the authority of God. The king is not autonomous. You have to have the prophet anoint the king. You see this throughout the uh, the Old Testament. The prophet anoints the king. Jesus doesn't just show up as the king independent of a prophetic announcement and prophetic authority. It is a prophet who anoints Jesus for the beginning of his uh, his role as the Messiah. So John the Baptist shows up. We have a that, that's impacted uh, American government. Where do we see an analogy to that in American government? It is the chief justice of the Supreme Court who takes a Bible, and the president must put his hand upon the Bible and swear that he is going to uphold the Constitution of the United States. It places the authority of the executive branch under the Word of God and under the Constitution of the United States. It is not an autonomous power, though Recent presidents have tended to abuse it and use it that way, and that's a violation of their oath and a violation of the Constitution. Now, in Malachi 3.1, we read that uh, Malachi says, be, uh, prophesies, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. The point is that there's this messenger that's going to appear before the Messiah, and he's the one who will cleanse the temple. How's that seen in the life of Jesus? He cleanses the temple twice, the beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry. Uh, he is... So John the Baptist fulfills that role. That's clearly what Jesus states in um, in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 10. The other passage we go to here is in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is at the very end of, of, of Malachi. The last verse in Malachi 4 is Malachi 6, 4, 6. The next verse is going to be Matthew 1. 
So the last, this is the last thing that God says to the Jews in the Old Testament. And then he's going to shut down Revelation for almost 400 years. And the last thing that he tells them has to do uh, with Elijah. He says, remember, he says two things here at the end. He says two things you need to do. Remember the law of Moses and look for Elijah. Now, who shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. That's part of the reason those two are there. Malachi says, remember the law of of Moses. And in verse 5, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, that phrase day of the Lord refers to a time of divine judgment. And if you just see the word day of the Lord, then that could probably includes all of the uh, seven years of the tribulation, the period of Daniel's 70th week, the period also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. But in both uh, Joel 2.31 and here, you see a reference to the day of the Lord as being great and terrible. And that's a reference to the campaign of Armageddon, the military campaign. It's not one battle. It's a series of battles, as we've studied. And that occurs at the end of that seven-year period. So this reference in Malachi 4.5 is that he would send Elijah the prophet sometime before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That would be the second coming when Christ defeats the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, uh, and the armies of the kings of the earth uh, in the campaign of Armageddon. And what's the role of Elijah? What is his role? That's the last verse of the Old Testament. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with with a curse. Now, what's interesting here is that if you look at this verse, he will turn, looks like it refers uh, to the Lord. That because that seems to be the most immediate antecedent to that pronoun. But when Jesus quotes it, he uses it to refer to uh, uh, to Elijah. Uh, to, yeah, to Elijah. So this is the role of Elijah. His ministry will turn. That word in the Hebrew is the word shuv, which is a key word throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated repent. Sometimes it's translated to turn back to God. This is what Israel must do, according to Deuteronomy chapter. Uh, chapter 30, uh, in order to be restored to the land and for the kingdom to come, is they must turn back to God. And so Elijah will come preceding the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and his mission is to turn the people back to uh, to the Lord. And there's a reference here, uh, the phraseology here to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers is reminiscent of the command given in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 6 and 7 that the Lord says, these words I command you today, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, you rise up. And so it is a reference to the fact that they are turning back to God and that the word of God is believed and becoming vital in the social structure and the life of, uh, of Israel. Now, this is quoted in Luke. Now, remember, the last thing that God says to Israel in the Old Testament is look for Elijah and he's going to turn the people back, uh, back to God. 
the first person that shows up in the Gospel of Luke isn't Jesus. It's Zechariah, the high priest, and he's going in for his scheduled service in the, in the temple. And as he walks into the holy, the holy place, he is, he is astounded to see a figure, an unexpected figure there, and it's Gabriel who announces to him that he is indeed going to have a son. And he describes this son in Luke 1, 16 to 17. Zacharias is going to be the father of John the Baptist. And he says regarding this son that Zacharias is going to have, he says, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now notice when you read Malachi 4 or 5, you think that Elijah himself is going to come back. That, But the Bible doesn't uh, hold to reincarnation. What we learn from the uh, progressive revelation of Luke one seventeen is that the language of Malachi four wasn't to be understood literally, but that he would be there would be someone coming who followed in the kind of ministry of of uh, Elijah, and Elijah was one who came and confronted the powers uh, of his day in the persons of Ahab and Jezebel and the false teaching that they promoted, their hostility to Christians, they, they sought to destroy them. And, of course, we all remember the great, uh, uh, the great uh, confrontation that occurred on Mount Carmel between Ahab and the uh, priests of Baal and the priests of the Asherah, where uh, they spent all day dancing around and cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things to get Baal to wake up and to to uh, burn the sacrifice, and he never did. And then Elijah had um, had uh, just a copious amounts, gallons and gallons of water uh, thrown over the sacrifice until everything was completely soaked, and they had a ditch that they had dug around the altar, and it overflowed with water. And then Elijah just called upon God to accept the sacrifice, and a bolt of lightning came from heaven and just uh, just consumed everything. Uh, instantly, and so it was just just incinerated. And the the legend is the story that comes down is that that fire that came down from heaven was so bright and so large and so powerful, it wasn't just a narrow little bolt of lightning, but that it was seen throughout Israel. It lit up the land, and everybody knew that the God of Israel had defeated the the prophets of Baal and the and the Asherah. And so this is the this is the type of ministry that that this person is going to have, and he's going to fulfill that that prophesied role of Malachi four five to turn the hearts of the fathers uh, back to the children. But that failed in the ministry in the life of John the Baptist. His message was rejected, so he's going to end up not being uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Malachi three one, uh, the Lord said this was his messenger. But what happens later is he says something different. He puts a condition on it. Matthew eleven nine, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus said, And what do you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. So he's clearly talking back that Malachi 3, 1 is fulfilled in, uh, in Elijah. 
But he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he's the one who had the privilege to announce the Messiah. Yet the one, this one is, who's least, in, he goes on to say, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The religious leaders are violently opposed to it. And they are trying to shut it down, which is what they did in beheading John the Baptist. And then in verse 13, Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And look at the language. If you are willing to accept it, in other words, the it is the message of the kingdom. If you're willing to accept it, this is in Matthew 11 before the official rejection in Matthew 12. If you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. But it's conditioned on accepting. He would be the one who would fulfill all of that if his message had been accepted. And so back to Matthew Matthew chapter 17 when Peter says, uh, well, what, what about the scribes that say Elijah must, must come first? And then Jesus' answer is, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So now Elijah hasn't come. It's not past tense. It's, it's present tense, but it's a future sense. He is coming. It's future, and he will restore all things when he comes. And that word for restore is the word apokathistemi, which was a phrase that was also used to describe the restoration that would come in the end times when the uh, uh, when the kingdom is established, and so that is the role of Elijah. But it's put off. There's somebody who's uh, going to be that Elijah, fulfill that ministry uh, in the power of Elijah, and there will be a future restoration. There will be a future time when there's a utopia on this earth, but it's not going to be brought in by the Democrats. It's not going to be brought in by by Bernie Sanders in socialism. Socialism is terrible. Socialism has never worked anywhere. Uh, capitalism is pretty terrible, too. Everybody wants to jump on how bad capitalism is and all of the inequities and everything else. And I always love the quote from Winston Churchill where he said, capitalism is a horrible system, but it's better than any of the alternatives. Everything else steals from the rich to give to the poor, and that violates Scripture. So you always have people who come along and say, Oh, I think somebody tried to say this this last week, that, that if we're going to be biblical, we need to share the wealth. That's not being biblical, that's being criminal. And it's not being very, very bright either. So we, there will be a utopia. There will be a time when there is peace on earth, and that will come when the Messiah comes, and their swords will be beaten into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But that doesn't come until the Messiah comes. It's certainly not the U.N., uh, UN has that verse emblazoned in, over the entryway to the UN building, which shows that they claim a religious function that is to be the Messiah. That certainly isn't going to happen. It's not going to be brought in by the Roman Catholic Church. I don't care what the Pope says. Uh, none of this is going to happen until Jesus returns. And until then, as Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines. There will be trends of economic prosperity and economic collapse. 
And it's not going to change until we get a perfect king, a perfect kingdom, a perfect government, and the bureaucracy is overseen by a perfect people, church-age believers and Old Testament saints who are resurrected to rule over the uh, planet during the time of the millennial kingdom. And so... Uh, this is this is the future. In Mark, Mark 9, Mark adds something. He says in Mark 9, 12, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Peter, Mark adds that. Peter's saying, why do we have to keep talking about your suffering? I don't want that yet. He finally got the point, though. And in Acts 3:18 and 19, in his um, in his second major sermon in Acts, he again is offering the kingdom to Israel, and he talks about it under the phraseology of the times of refreshing. He tells the Jews that if they want the kingdom to come, they're going to have to repent, change their mind, turn to God that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, that that is a verse that's addressed to Israel because repent means to turn. That's the issue for Israel is to turn back to God. This is not a salvation verse saying that if you want to be saved and go to heaven, you need to repent and believe. Only if you understand repent is changing your mind. The Gospel of John is written to tell people how to be saved. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. Based on that, John says you must do what to to be saved? Believe. Nothing else. Ninety-five times the verb for believe is used in the Gospel of John. Zero times is repent mentioned. Not once. So if somebody had the Gospel of John... They would say, oh, all I have to do is believe and I'll be saved. That's it. Nothing else. Repentance was a a code word coming out of the Mosaic Law directed specifically to Israel at this time that they needed to turn back because that was the condition of Matthew thir- I mean of Deuteronomy 31 to 2 that they needed to turn back to God so that he would restore them from all the nations from which they had been scattered. And then in Matthew 17:12 Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. They arrested him, they put him in jail, and they cut his head off. That's what they did. The powers that be, the kingdom of God suffered violence, as Matthew 11 says. So there he recognizes John the Baptist was Elijah contingent upon his acceptance. He was not accepted so that that will be fulfilled in a person in the future kingdom. Maybe one of the two prophets that show up on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period and are executed by the Antichrist halfway through uh, the tribulation period. And then it finally dawns on them in verse 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. The issue that confused them is one that still confuses people today. It especially confuses those who are of a Jewish background because it says that the cross is foolishness to them in the Scripture because they don't understand the distinctions between the suffering Messiah and the glorified Messiah, the difference that the cross had to come uh, before the crown. 
But this is what had to take place because the sin problem had to be, had to be solved. Jesus had to pay that penalty for sin so that redemption was accomplished, that we could be freed from the penalty of sin, and we could be regenerate so then we could go into the kingdom that would come. Because what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And that comes only by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to be reminded of who Jesus Christ is as the promised and prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament, the one who would be your lamb, the one who was without spot or blemish, the one who was absolutely perfect, the one who never sinned, was not was born of a virgin birth, so he didn't receive the transference of Adam's, uh, of the sin nature. He didn't receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. He committed no personal sin, so he's perfectly qualified to die as our substitute, to be the sacrificial lamb that would bring atonement to all the world. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone who is listening to this message, that if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, if they're unsure about their eternal destiny or uncertain about their salvation, that right now they would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. At that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal life. We don't need to raise our hand or walk an aisle. We don't need to commit our life to Christ or do any of these other things that are so often uh, stated today, but simply what the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the fact that we have a role and a mission that is the same as that given to the disciples in Matthew, that we are to go into all the world making disciples and teaching your word, explaining the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, anyone who will listen that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of that challenge at all times. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.